Day 5 of Totus Tuus' Novena With quotes from John Paul II's encyclical Evangelium Vitae And behold, one came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? Jesus replied, If you would enter life, keep the commandments. The teacher is speaking about eternal life, that is, a sharing in the life of God himself. This life is attained through the observance of the Lord's commandments, including the commandment, You shall not kill. This is the first precept from the Decalogue, which Jesus quotes to the young man, who asks him what commandments he should observe. Jesus said, You shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. God's commandment is never detached from his love. It is always a gift meant for man's growth and joy. As such, it represents an essential and indispensable aspect of the gospel, actually becoming gospel itself, joyful good news. The gospel of life is both a great gift of God and an exacting task for humanity. It gives rise to amazement and gratitude in the person graced with freedom, and it asks to be welcomed, preserved and esteemed with a deep sense of responsibility. In giving life to man, God demands that he love, respect and promote life. The gift thus becomes a commandment, and the commandment is itself a gift. Man, as the living image of God, is willed by his Creator to be ruler and Lord. St. Gregory of Nyssa writes that God made man capable of carrying out his role as king of the earth. Man was created in the image of the one who governs the universe. Everything demonstrates that from the beginning, man's nature was marked by royalty. Man is a king. Created to exercise dominion over the world, he was given a likeness to the king of the universe. He is the living image who participates by his dignity in the perfection of the divine archetype. Called to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth and exercise dominion over lesser creatures, man is ruler and lord not only over things, but especially over himself, and in a certain sense, over the life which he has received and which he is able to transmit through procreation carried out with love and respect for God's plan. Man's lordship, however, is not absolute, but ministerial. It is a real reflection of the unique and infinite lordship of God. Hence, man must exercise it with wisdom and love, sharing in the boundless wisdom and love of God. And this comes about through obedience to God's holy law, a free and joyful obedience, born of and fostered by an awareness that the precepts of the Lord are a gift of grace entrusted to man always and solely for his good, for the preservation of his personal dignity and the pursuit of his happiness. With regard to things, but even more with regard to life, man is not the absolute master and final judge, but rather 
and this is where his incomparable greatness lies. He is the minister of God's plan. Life is entrusted to man as a treasure which must not be squandered, as a talent which must be used well. Man must render an account of it to his master. Human life is sacred because from its beginning it involves the creative action of God, and it remains forever in a special relationship with the Creator, who is its sole end. God alone is the Lord of life from its beginning until its end. No one can, in any circumstance, claim for himself the right to destroy directly an innocent human being. With these words, the instruction, Donum Vitae, sets forth the central content of God's revelation on the sacredness and inviolability of human life. Sacred Scripture, in fact, presents the precept, You shall not kill, as a divine commandment. As I have already emphasized, this commandment is found in the Decalogue, at the heart of the covenant which the Lord makes with his chosen people but it was already contained in the original covenant between God and humanity after the purifying punishment of the flood caused by the spread of sin and violence. God proclaims that he is absolute Lord of the life of man who is formed in his image and likeness. Human life is thus given a sacred and inviolable character which reflects the inviolability of the Creator himself. Precisely for this reason God will severely judge every violation of the commandment, You shall not kill, the commandment which is at the basis of all life together in society. He is the goal, the defender of the innocent. God thus shows that he does not delight in the death of the living. Only Satan can delight therein, for through his envy death entered the world. He who is a murderer from the beginning is also a liar and the father of lies. By deceiving man, he leads him to projects of sin and death, making them appear as goals and fruits of life. As explicitly formulated, the precept, you shall not kill, is strongly negative. It indicates the extreme limit which can never be exceeded. Implicitly, however, it encourages a positive attitude of absolute respect for life. It leads to the promotion of life and to progress along the way of a love which gives, receives and serves. The people of the covenant, although slowly and with some contradictions, progressively matured in this way of thinking and thus prepared for the great proclamation of Jesus that the commandment to love one's neighbour is like the commandment to love God. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. St. Paul emphasizes that the commandment, you shall not kill, and any other commandment, are summed up in this phrase, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Taken up and brought to fulfillment in the new law, the commandment, you shall not kill, stands as an indispensable condition for being able to enter life. In this same perspective, the words of the Apostle John have a categorical ring. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. From the beginning, the living tradition of the Church, as shown by the Didache, 
the most ancient non-biblical Christian writing, categorically repeated the commandment, You shall not kill. There are two ways, a way of life and a way of death. There is a great difference between them. In accordance with the precept of the teaching, You shall not kill, you shall not put a child to death by abortion, nor kill it once it is born. The way of death is this. They show no compassion for the poor. They do not suffer with the suffering. They do not acknowledge their Creator. They kill their children, and by abortion cause God's creatures to perish. They drive away the needy, oppress the suffering. They are advocates of the rich, and unjust judges of the poor. They are filled with every sin. May you be able to stay ever apart, O children, from all these sins. As time passed, the Church's tradition has always consistently taught the absolute and unchanging value of the commandment, You shall not kill. It is a known fact that in the first centuries, murder was put among the three most serious sins, along with apostasy and adultery, and required a particularly heavy and lengthy public penance before the repentant murderer could be granted forgiveness and readmission to the ecclesial community. This should not cause surprise. To kill a human being, in whom the image of God is present, is a particularly serious sin. Only God is the master of life. Yet from the beginning, faced with the many and often tragic cases which occur in the life of individuals and society, Christian reflection has sought a fuller and deeper understanding of what God's commandment prohibits and prescribes. There are in fact situations in which values proposed by God's law seem to involve a genuine paradox. This happens, for example, in the case of legitimate defence, in which the right to protect one's own life and the duty not to harm someone else's life are difficult to reconcile in practice. Certainly, the intrinsic value of life and the duty to love oneself no less than others are the basis of a true right to self-defence. The demanding commandment of love of neighbour, set forth in the Old Testament and confirmed by Jesus, itself presupposes love of oneself as the basis of comparison. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. Consequently, no one can renounce the right to self-defence out of lack of love for life or for self. This can only be done in virtue of a heroic love which deepens and transfigures the love of self into a radical self-offering, according to the spirit of the Gospel Beatitudes. The sublime example of this self-offering is the Lord Jesus himself. Moreover, legitimate defence can be not only a right, but a grave duty for someone responsible for another's life, the common good of the family or of the state. Unfortunately, it happens that the need to render the aggressor incapable of causing harm sometimes involves taking his life. In this case, the fatal outcome is attributable to the aggressor whose action brought it about, even though he may not be morally responsible because of a lack of the use of reason. This is the context in which to place the problem of the death penalty. On this matter there is a growing tendency both in the Church and in civil society, to demand that it be applied in a very limited way, or even that it be abolished completely. 
the problem must be viewed in the context of a system of penal justice, ever more in line with human dignity, and thus, in the end, with God's plan for man and society. The primary purpose of the punishment which society inflicts is to redress the disorder caused by the offence. Public authority must redress the violation of personal and social rights by imposing on the offender an adequate punishment for the crime, as a condition for the offender to regain the exercise of his or her freedom. In this way, authority also fulfills the purpose of defending public order and ensuring people's safety, while at the same time offering the offender an incentive and help to change his or her behaviour and be rehabilitated. It is clear that, for these purposes to be achieved, the nature and extent of the punishment must be carefully evaluated and decided upon, and ought not to go to the extreme of executing the offender, except in cases of absolute necessity, in other words, when it would not be possible otherwise to defend society. Today, however, as a result of steady improvements in the organisation of the penal system, such cases are very rare, if not practically non-existent. In any event, the principles set forth in the new catechism of the Catholic Church remains valid. If bloodless means are sufficient to defend human lives against an aggressor and to protect public order and the safety of persons, public authority must limit itself to such means because they better correspond to the concrete conditions of the common good and are more in conformity with the dignity of the human person. If such great care must be taken to respect every life, even that of criminals and unjust aggressors, the commandment, you shall not kill, has absolute value when it refers to the innocent person, and all the more so in the case of weak and defenceless human beings, who find their ultimate defence against the arrogance and caprice of others only in the absolute binding force of God's commandment. In effect, the absolute inviolability of innocent human life is a moral truth clearly taught by sacred scripture, constantly upheld in the Church's tradition and consistently proposed by her magisterium. This consistent teaching is the evident result of that supernatural sense of the faith, which inspired and sustained by the Holy Spirit, safeguards the people of God from error when it shows universal agreement in matters of faith and morals. Faced with progressive weakening in individual consciences and in society of the sense of the absolute and grave moral illicitness of the direct taking of all innocent human life, especially at its beginning and at its end, the Church's magisterium has spoken out with increasing frequency in defence of the sacredness and inviolability of human life. The papal magisterium, particularly insistent in this regard, has always been seconded by that of the bishops, with numerous and comprehensive doctrinal and pastoral documents issued either by episcopal conferences or by individual bishops. The Second Vatican Council also addressed the matter forcefully in a brief but incisive passage. Therefore, by the authority which Christ conferred upon Peter and his successors, and in communion with the bishops of the Catholic Church, I confirm that the direct and voluntary killing of an innocent human being is always gravely immoral. This doctrine, based upon that unwritten law which man, in the light of reason, finds in his own heart, is reaffirmed by sacred scripture 
transmitted by the tradition of the Church and taught by the ordinary and universal magisterium. The deliberate decision to deprive an innocent human being of his life is always morally evil and can never be licit either as an end in itself or as a means to a good end. It is in fact a grave act of disobedience to the moral law and indeed to God himself, the author and guarantor of that law. It contradicts the fundamental virtues of justice and charity. Nothing and no one can in any way permit the killing of an innocent human being, whether a fetus or an embryo, an infant or an adult, an old person, or one suffering from an incurable disease, or a person who is dying. Furthermore, no one is permitted to ask for this act of killing, either for himself or herself, or for another person entrusted to his or her care. Nor can he or she consent to it, either explicitly or implicitly. Nor can any authority legitimately recommend or permit such an action. As far as the right to life is concerned, every innocent human being is absolutely equal to all others. This equality is the basis of all authentic social relationships, which, to be truly such, can only be founded on truth and justice, recognizing and protecting every man and woman as a person and not as an object to be used. Before the moral norm, which prohibits the direct taking of the life of an innocent human being, there are no privileges or exceptions for anyone. It makes no difference whether one is the master of the world or the poorest of the poor on the face of the earth. Before the demands of morality, we are all absolutely equal. Among all the crimes which can be committed against life, procured abortion has characteristics making it particularly serious and deplorable. The Second Vatican Council defines abortion, together with infanticide, as an unspeakable crime. But today, in many people's consciences, the perception of its gravity has become progressively obscured. The acceptance of abortion in the popular mind, in behaviour and even in law itself, is a telling sign of an extremely dangerous crisis of the moral sense, which is becoming more and more incapable of distinguishing between good and evil, even when the fundamental right to life is at stake. Given such a grave situation, we need now more than ever to have the courage to look the truth in the eye and to call things by their proper name without yielding to convenient compromises or to the temptation of self-deception. In this regard, the reproach of the prophet is extremely straightforward. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Especially in the case of abortion, there is a widespread use of ambiguous terminology, such as interruption of pregnancy, which tends to hide abortion's true nature and to attenuate its seriousness in public opinion. Perhaps this linguistic phenomenon is itself a symptom of an uneasiness of conscience. But no word has the power to change the reality of things. Procured abortion is the deliberate and direct killing, 
by whatever means it is carried out, of a human being in the initial phase of his or her existence, extending from conception to birth. The moral gravity of procured abortion is apparent in all its truth if we recognize that we are dealing with murder, and in particular, when we consider the specific elements involved. The one eliminated is a human being at the very beginning of life. No one more absolutely innocent could be imagined. In no way could this human being ever be considered an aggressor, much less an unjust aggressor. He or she is weak, defenceless, even to the point of lacking that minimal form of defence, consisting in the poignant power of a newborn baby's cries and tears. The unborn child is totally entrusted to the protection and care of the woman carrying him or her in the womb. And yet sometimes it is precisely the mother herself who makes the decision and asks for the child to be eliminated, and who then goes about having it done. It is true that the decision to have an abortion is often tragic and painful for the mother, insofar as the decision to rid herself of the fruit of conception is not made for purely selfish reasons, or out of convenience, but out of a desire to protect certain important values, such as her own health or a decent standard of living, for the other members of the family. Sometimes it is feared that the child to be born would live in such conditions that it would be better if the birth did not take place. Nevertheless, these reasons and others like them, however serious and tragic, can never justify the deliberate killing of an innocent human being. As well as the mother, there are often other people too who decide upon the death of the child in the womb. In the first place, the father of the child may be to blame, not only when he directly pressures the woman to have an abortion, but also when he indirectly encourages such a decision on her part by leaving her alone to face the problems of pregnancy. In this way, the family is thus mortally wounded and profaned in its nature as a community of love and in its vocation to be the sanctuary of life. Nor can one overlook the pressures which sometimes come from the wider family circle and from friends. Sometimes the woman is subjected to such strong pressure that she feels psychologically forced to have an abortion. Certainly in this case, moral responsibility lies particularly with those who have directly or indirectly obliged her to have an abortion. Doctors and nurses are also responsible when they place at the service of death skills which were acquired for promoting life. But responsibility likewise falls on the legislators who have promoted and approved abortion laws and to the extent that they have a say in the matter, on the administrators of the healthcare centres where abortions are performed. A general and no less serious responsibility lies with those who have encouraged the spread of an attitude of sexual permissiveness and a lack of esteem for motherhood, and with those who should have ensured, but did not, effective family and social policies in support of families, especially larger families and those with particular financial and educational needs. Finally, one cannot overlook the network of complicity which reaches out to include international institutions, foundations and associations which systematically campaign for the legalisation and spread of abortion in the world. In this sense, 
Abortion goes beyond the responsibility of individuals and beyond the harm done to them and takes on a distinctly social dimension. It is a most serious wound inflicted on society and its culture by the very people who ought to be society's promoters and defenders. As I wrote in my letter to families, we are facing an immense threat to life, not only to the life of individuals, but also to that of civilization itself. We are facing what can be called a structure of sin, which opposes human life not yet born. Some people try to justify abortion by claiming that the result of conception, at least up to a certain number of days, cannot yet be considered a personal human life. But in fact, from the time that the ovum is fertilized, a life is begun which is neither that of the father nor the mother. It is rather the life of a new human being with his own growth. It would never be made human if it were not human already. This has always been clear, and modern genetic science offers clear confirmation. It has been demonstrated that, from the first instant, there is established the program of what this living being will be, a person, this individual person with his characteristic aspects already well determined. Right from fertilization, the adventure of a human life begins, and each of its capacities requires time a rather lengthy time, to find its place and to be in a position to act. Even if the presence of a spiritual soul cannot be ascertained by empirical data, the results themselves of scientific research on the human embryo provide a valuable indication for discerning by the use of reason a personal presence at the moment of the first appearance of a human life. How could a human individual not be a human person? Furthermore, what is at stake is so important that from the standpoint of moral obligation, the mere probability that a human person is involved would suffice to justify an absolutely clear prohibition of any intervention aimed at killing a human embryo. Precisely for this reason, over and above all scientific debates and those philosophical affirmations to which the magisterium has not expressly committed itself, the Church has always taught and continues to teach that the result of human procreation, from the first moment of its existence, must be guaranteed that unconditional respect which is morally due to the human being in his or her totality and unity as body and spirit. The human being is to be respected and treated as a person from the moment of conception, and therefore from that same moment his rights as a person must be recognised, among which in the first place is the inviolable right of every innocent human being to life. The texts of sacred scripture never address the question of deliberate abortion, and so do not directly and specifically condemn it. But they show such great respect for the human being in the mother's womb, that they require as a logical consequence that God's commandment, you shall not kill, be extended to the unborn child as well. Human life is sacred and inviolable at every moment of existence, including the initial phase which precedes birth. All human beings, from their mother's womb, belong to God who searches them and knows them, 
who forms them and knits them together with his own hands, who gazes on them when they are tiny, shapeless embryos, and already sees in them the adults of tomorrow, whose days are numbered and whose vocation is even now written in the book of life. There, too, when they are still in their mother's womb, as many passages of the Bible bear witness, they are the personal objects of God's loving and fatherly providence. Christian tradition, as the declaration issued by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith points out so well, is clear and unanimous, from the beginning up to our own day, in describing abortion as a particularly grave moral disorder. From its first contacts with the Greco-Roman world, where abortion and infanticide were widely practised, the first Christian community, by its teaching and practice, radically opposed the customs rampant in that society, as is clearly shown by the Didache mentioned earlier. Among the Greek ecclesiastical writers, Athenagoras records that Christians consider as murderesses women who have recourse to abortifacient medicines, because children, even if they are still in their mother's womb, are already under the protection of divine providence. Among the Latin authors, Tertullian affirms, It is anticipated murder to prevent someone from being born. It makes little difference whether one kills a soul already born or puts it to death at birth. He who will one day be a man is a man already. Throughout Christianity's 2,000-year history, this same doctrine has been constantly taught by the fathers of the Church and by her pastors and doctors. Even scientific and philosophical discussions about the precise moment of the infusion of the spiritual soul have never given rise to any hesitation about the moral condemnation of abortion. The more recent papal magisterium has vigorously reaffirmed this common doctrine. Pius XI in particular, in his encyclical Casti Conubi, rejected the specious justifications of abortion. Pius XII excluded all direct abortion, i.e. every act tending directly to destroy human life in the womb, whether such destruction is intended as an end, or only as a means to an end. John XXIII reaffirmed that human life is sacred, because from its very beginning it directly involves God's creative activity. The Second Vatican Council, as mentioned earlier, sternly condemned abortion. From the moment of its conception, life must be guarded with the greatest care, while abortion and infanticide are unspeakable crimes. The Church's canonical discipline, from the earliest centuries, has inflicted penal sanctions on those guilty of abortion. This practice, with more or less severe penalties, has been confirmed in various periods of history. The 1917 Code of Canon Law punished abortion with excommunication. The revised canonical legislation continues this tradition when it decrees that a person who actually procures an abortion incurs automatic excommunication. The excommunication affects all those who commit this crime with knowledge of the penalty attached, and thus includes those accomplices without whose help the crime would not have been committed. By this reiterated sanction, the Church makes clear that abortion is a most serious and dangerous crime, thereby encouraging those who commit it to seek without delay the path of conversion. 
in the Church, the purpose of the penalty of excommunication is to make an individual fully aware of the gravity of a certain sin, and then to foster genuine conversion and repentance. Given such unanimity in the doctrinal and disciplinary tradition of the Church, Paul VI was able to declare that this tradition is unchanged and unchangeable. Therefore, by the authority which Christ conferred upon Peter and his successors, in communion with the bishops, who on various occasions have condemned abortion, and who in the aforementioned consultation, albeit dispersed throughout the world, have shown unanimous agreement concerning this doctrine, I declare that direct abortion, that is, abortion willed as an end or as a means, always constitutes a grave moral disorder, since it is the deliberate killing of an innocent human being. This doctrine is based upon the natural law, and upon the written word of God, is transmitted by the Church's tradition, and taught by the ordinary and universal magisterium. No circumstance, no purpose, no law whatsoever, can ever make licit an act which is intrinsically illicit, since it is contrary to the law of God, which is written in every human heart, knowable by reason itself, and proclaimed by the Church. This evaluation of the morality of abortion is to be applied also to the recent forms of intervention on human embryos, which, although carried out for purposes legitimate in themselves, inevitably involve the killing of those embryos. This is the case with experimentation on embryos, which is becoming increasingly widespread in the field of biomedical research and is legally permitted in some countries. Although one must uphold as licit procedures carried out on the human embryo which respect the life and integrity of the embryo and do not involve disproportionate risks for it, but rather are directed to its healing, the improvement of its condition of health or its individual survival. It must nonetheless be stated that the use of human embryos or fetuses as an object of experimentation constitutes a crime against their dignity as human beings, who have a right to the same respect owed to a child once born, just as to every person. This moral condemnation also regards procedures that exploit living human embryos and fetuses, sometimes specifically produced for this purpose by in vitro fertilization, either to be used as biological material or as providers of organs or tissue for transplants in the treatment of certain diseases. The killing of innocent human creatures, even if carried out to help others, constitutes an absolutely unacceptable act. Special attention must be given to evaluating the morality of prenatal diagnostic techniques, which enable the early detection of possible anomalies in the unborn child. In view of the complexity of these techniques, an accurate and systematic moral judgment is necessary. When they do not involve disproportionate risks for the child and the mother, and are meant to make possible early therapy or even to favour a serene and informed acceptance of the child not yet born, these techniques are morally licit. But since the possibilities of prenatal therapy are today still limited, it not infrequently happens that these techniques are used with a eugenic intention, which accepts selective abortion 
in order to prevent the birth of children affected by various types of anomalies. Such an attitude is shameful and utterly reprehensible, since it presumes to measure the value of a human life only within the parameters of normality and physical well-being, thus opening the way to legitimizing infanticide and euthanasia as well. And yet the courage and the serenity with which so many of our brothers and sisters, suffering from serious disabilities, lead their lives, when they are shown acceptance and love, bears eloquent witness to what gives authentic value to life, and makes it, even in difficult conditions, something precious for them and for others. The Church is close to those married couples who, with great anguish and suffering, willingly accept gravely handicapped children. She is also grateful to all those families which, through adoption, welcome children abandoned by their parents because of disabilities or illnesses. Let us pray. O Mary, bright dawn of the new world, mother of the living, to you do we entrust the cause of life. Look down, O mother, upon the vast numbers of babies not allowed to be born, of the poor whose lives are made difficult, of men and women who are victims of brutal violence, of the elderly and the sick, killed by indifference or out of misguided mercy. Grant that all who believe in your Son may proclaim the gospel of life with honesty and love to the people of our time. Obtain for them the grace to accept the gospel as a gift ever new, the joy of celebrating it with gratitude throughout their lives, and the courage to bear witness to it resolutely, in order to build, together with all people of goodwill, the civilization of truth and love, to the praise and glory of God, the creator and lover of life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.